So you walk into a grocery store, wherever you do some shopping, maybe you do some Christmas shopping uh, in town. Inevitably, you're going to run into someone you know. And what's the first thing that you say after you've dodged eye contact with a few people? You finally feel guilty and you're like, okay, I'll talk to them. You go up and you say, how's it going? And they respond saying, oh, good, just what? Busy, right? We all say this. So we wear our busyness like a badge of honor, like we should in good old-fashioned, hardworking, blue-collar South Dakota. Uh, We're busy people, and we like to wear it as a a badge of honor. And I know I'm preaching to the choir. I guarantee you a majority of you have probably busier lives than I do. Um, So busyness is nothing new. Um, I'm I'm probably not even going to be able to give you any sort of secret advice as to, you know, how to manage your life. I'm I'm really not the person to ask about that. Um, I I tend to to stay pretty busy, but it's not because I maybe prefer it that way. It's usually because I've overbooked myself and I've got a lot of other things going on throughout my week. But here's just a few things. So not to, I know I'm preaching in the choir, but here's just a few things that, that keep us pretty busy. Our jobs are one, okay? So uh, these are some statistics. Uh, These are probably not going to be too shocking. One of them kind of surprised me a little bit. So 86% of men, this is just men, 86% of men uh, work an average of more than 40 hours per week. So over 40 hours. 86% of men work over 40 hours a week. And yet, most say they still don't have enough time to get everything done. So even, you know, working overtime every week, still not enough time in your work schedule to get everything that you need to get done. Only 57%, this one surprised me a little bit, only 57% of Americans use all of their allotted vacation time. So I thought that was kind of interesting. So uh, it doesn't mean that they're using none, but it means that whatever their vacation time is, they haven't maxed it out. Um, they're, they're ending their year. Um, hopefully that's rolling into the following year. I don't know. Depends on, I guess, how, how your benefit package is set up. But it's time, that's usually time dedicated, hopefully, to rest. Um, at the very least, going and seeing some family. And no question, this impacts families. Uh, every, if, for those of you that maybe grew up in the kind of early 90s, every Tim Allen, Robin Williams, uh, you name it, like Disney movie, the, the plot was the dad, Tim Allen, for example, was so busy. He's so preoccupied with work. In fact, I'm pretty sure this is the entire plot of the movie Hook, if you've ever seen it. Um, with Robin Williams. He, he's getting a phone call. He's supposed to go to his son's soccer game. He's getting a phone call from work, so he pulls out his gigantic cell phone, pulls the antenna out, answers hello, and uh, goes to work instead of, instead of making it to his son's soccer game. So it impacts families, but it's not only impacting families, it's impacting us individually. So uh, there's a study done in a six-year study of 2,500 workers Those who worked 11-hour days were two and a half times more likely uh, to experience or become depressed uh, than those who worked eight-hour days. And so more work doesn't equal more, more more money or more time for relaxation. It doesn't make necessarily a better life. Um, It's not just affecting our families. It's impacting us. And so that's just, that's our jobs. And so then what happens is we get home from work and uh, we, we open our door. And the fortunate thing is we all have homes that we can just step into and everything shuts off, right? You walk inside. And no, that's not how it works. You walk inside and uh, I don't know about you, but I walk inside and my wife is always greeting me there. She's like, hello, honey, here's a cup of coffee. Go have a seat. Take a load off. I know you've had a busy day. And my, my kids come up to me and they say, Hello, Father, how are you doing today? And I say, oh, I'm doing great. Thank you for asking Emmett. And how are you, Emmett? And he says, I, I'm doing well. I'm going to go read now and study. And 
become literate and go to college someday and make you proud. Um, no, that's not how it goes. You get home and really your job has only just begun. Uh, you're, you're wrangling kids. Uh, if you're like me, you're literally wrestling them down, trying to force feed them medicine because they've got their 15th cold in the last month. Um, it's, just, it's just the way it goes. Um, kids make our lives incredibly busy. No matter what stage you're at, um, well, every stage has its own uh, crazy busyness. I'm not at the stage where I'm taking kids to practices, but I am at the stage where you can't rationalize or reason with a kid. I've heard, depending on uh, your kid's temperament, that may, that may never actually change until they leave your home, maybe, and maybe even then, I don't know. Um, but anyone know who Jim Gaffigan is? Jim Gaffigan, yep, Commun pretty famous comedian. He's kind of known for clean comedy. Um, he, uh, he has a, a whole slew of kids, and uh, he was asked one time, this is in a comedy special from a while ago, uh, he was asked, uh, moving, they were just about to have their fifth kid. And uh, he lived in New York City, and they had one studio apartment. So they all lived, what was going to be five kids lived in one studio apartment in New York City. I, I'm sure he's worth a lot of money. I think he could probably afford a bigger house. I don't know why he, maybe it's just for sake of the joke. But uh, someone was asking Jim Gaffigan, you know, what's that like going from, you know, four to five kids, you know? And he's even painting the picture he's talking about. Like after one kid, people are like, oh, that's great. After two kids, they're like, oh, that's so great. You get up to four kids and they're like, isn't that a little irresponsible here? That's when you start getting it, kind of getting the weird looks from people. And, uh, and so someone was asking him, you know, what's it like now, you know, now that you have five kids? And, uh, and he said, well, just imagine that you're, you're, you're in water and you're just, you're drowning. You're trying to swim, but you're drowning. And then some hands reach out to you and they hand you a baby. And that's pretty much what it feels like to have five kids in a tiny little studio apartment. Um, kids are exhausting. Amen. This morning, my son woke up. I was just, I got to, finally got to bed last night after getting up here and uh, I, I like to practice and actually talk through what I'm gonna what I'm gonna say, and uh, get home. And at 2 a.m., like clockwork, Emmett has been sleeping through. He's our two-year-old. He's been sleeping through the night. Great. Last night, decides he's gonna wake up three times, and he's gonna he, crawl into bed with me, and he's gonna basically push me out of the bed. So I actually got up and went over and I slept. I just left him. I wasn't gonna mess with him. Uh, I just left him in my bed, and I went and slept in his bed for the rest of the night. So mom had to deal with uh, him for the rest of the night. But we're just. Uh, because of kids, because of work, all of these other things, we are not getting enough sleep, okay? And I'm probably preaching to the choir right now. I, 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 for a long time, wondered how my parents, it seemed like they never slept, but they always had a decent amount of energy. Now I understand. I did not understand it back in high school when I needed, a, a, you know, uh, I think a moderate amount of sleep, you know, that 12, 13 hours of sleep that every high schooler needs. Um, you know, now I'm getting, you know, five hours of sleep um, on a good night, un, you know, unbothered, five whole hours. A stretch of five hours is like heaven, right? Waking up and full, being fully rested. And, and now I know. I understand what my, fam, my, my parents, it wasn't that they were arrested. It's that you just, your expectations change a little bit. So the average American gets about two hours less sleep than what uh, the clinicians recommend you should get. But um, this, is, this is not just a unique uh, thing because of overwork. Even though we might like to like to think in our minds that that's the reason, um, there's actually a lot of other reasons, and it's not just kids. Like people have been having kids, and they've been having way more kids than we are statistically having right now. Um, in fact, uh, greatest generation. So some of our grandparents, the greatest generation was marked by being really a, a generation that worked 
harder than maybe any, any other generation that we've seen in the past. They were known for how their work ethic and good attitudes, all the way having those, uh, those unbelievable circumstances, whether it's the Great Depression, two world wars, just uncanny uh, circumstances. But they were getting, on average, three to four hours more sleep than we are. And so really, it's not a result of overwork. It's a result of an unhealthy relationship with our technology. In fact, a Harvard study was conducted, and, uh, and it was a study done on the effects of blue light. That's, that's light that we get from uh, our, our TVs, our iPads, our phones, um, our, even our work computer screens. Blue light has really, really negative effects on our sleep. Um, in fact, they've, they did a study, this Harvard study, what they did was they had test subjects sit in front of six and a half hours of exposure, both some people of blue light and other people's different variations, different kinds of lights. Some of them would have been exposed to, you know, like what these lights are up here, regular house lights that we have lighting our dining rooms and living rooms, and then some of them even just regular daylight. And what they found was that people exposed to blue light, so six and a half hours throughout the course of the day, experienced a, at least a three-hour suppression of melatonin. So what does that mean? It means that it takes us, it took them three hours longer to enter a REM cycle. So even if they fell asleep, the sleep that they were getting was not quality sleep. Whereas other kinds of light, it was l like less than half of the suppression of melatonin. And so six and a half hours, maybe that sounds like a lot of you. The average American is, is exposed to blue light upwards of, it's closer to like 10 hours a day of blue light, more, more, more in line with maybe like that eight to 10 range. That's kind of what they estimate. Um, I've, I've read a lot of literature on high schoolers or, you know, Gen Z, and they are experiencing upwards of ex like 12 to 14 hours of exposure on a day-to-day -day basis. And so this technology that we have that's occupying all of our free time, um, and in some cases, not even our free time, our work is dramatically affecting our sleep patterns. And when we don't get proper sleep, uh, we suffer all sorts of, of, of health problems, uh, diabetes, um, heart risk of heart, uh, uh, heart risk, uh, heart disease, um, all sorts of awful, awful health um, consequences as a result of, of not getting enough sleep. But one of the consequences uh, that maybe you're not even thinking about is all of these things actually have an impact on our spiritual life. And uh, I, was, I was listening to a sermon by uh, Pastor D.A. Carson, and he was talking about, it was a lecture really, and he was talking about uh, causes of, different causes of doubt. And so he, he kind of attributed six core uh, things that, that cause uh, the Christian to experience doubt and maybe even to the point where they would turn away um, uh, from God. So uh, five of those things would have been kind of what you'd expect. It would have been things like, oh, they're not, in, they're not reading Scripture enough. They're not c consistently um, going to a church service. Um, they don't have some sort of, you know, tight uh, accountability group um, with it that, that's you know, centered around Christian ethics and, and being a Christian discipleship. Uh, but then you got to the last reason, and his last reason, uh, that, or what last uh, attribute, the thing that caused um, uh, spiritual decline or doubt, was sleep deprivation. Sleep deprivation. And this was his quote. This is his justification for it. He says, when you burn the candle at both ends, you engage in more and more cynicism. God made us compli complicated beings, uniting our spiritual health to our physical well-being. And so the bottom line is this. Everything that I just talked about is affecting your spiritual well-being. It's affecting my spiritual well-being. 
Have you ever heard the expression, idle hands uh, are the devil's workshop? You ever heard that one? I think I've heard another one, idle hands or something along those lines is the devil's playground is kind of what I thought. Maybe that's the kid version and the adult version is the workshop. I don't know. Well, what this is telling us and what D.A. Carson is asserting, and I think really the scripture that we're going to get into today is telling us, is that the opposite is actually true. In fact, Corey Tenboom, uh, one of my favorite Christians, like really in the history of Christians, uh, I, I read a quote from her. Um, she's the one that survived, uh, last time I preached, she's the one that survived uh, the concentration camp during World War II. She was the only survivor out of her entire family. Um, her, she's got a quote talking about um, being busy, being overly busy. And it's the, it's, she says this, if the devil can't make you sin, he'll make you what? Busy. If he can't make you sin, he'll make you busy. Blaise Pascal, a French philosopher, um, said uh, something uh, to the same effect. He said, busyness sends more people to hell than unbelief. And so these are kind of stark warnings. Um, these are, this is not looking very good for the busy life, um, for those who live a busy life, which is pretty much all of us. So if this is all true, I believe that most of us in this room, myself included, are kind of in trouble. That this is, this is not a good thing. This, that our life, when we wear around our busyness like a badge of honor, that there may be problems with that. And it may actually be affecting the thing that we, we wouldn't think it would be affecting. And that's our spiritual health, our walk with Jesus. And so there's a passage um, that we're going to read. It's in Luke chapter 10. I think it should be up on your screen, but you can turn to there if you like, uh, whether it's in your Bible or on your screen. If you want a little extra blue light, prolong that melatonin, kick in, feel free. I'm doing it right here. Um, uh, but we're, I, I would like to pray before we read this scripture. Um, I think it's just a good opportunity to kind of quiet our hearts, quiet our minds um, from the busyness, maybe the fantasy football um, uh, lineup that you're actively trying to edit while, while we're talking up here or the pizza that you want to eat or, you know, where you want to decide to eat. Let's just quiet our hearts and our minds this morning. Would you bow with me? Father, we thank you for uh, your word. We thank you for um, just making a way um, amidst our busy schedules um, a way out to where we can continue to grow spiritually. God, I just ask this morning that you would quiet our minds, um, that any distraction, that you would just remove it, and that your Holy Spirit would move amongst us. God, would you challenge us? Uh, would you convict us, but not to a place uh, where we just are, are hanging our head and feeling sorry for ourselves or feeling bad about ourselves, but God, that you'd be prompt us, you would prompt us through the power of your Holy Spirit to action this morning. Action to rest, um, to practice your presence, Jesus. We pray all of this in your name. And everybody said... Amen. Okay, let's read this. So we've just got a few verses. So Luke chapter 10, verse 38 through 42. said, Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village. And a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken from her. Now, we're going we're gonna to kind of work our way through this text, but uh, th that's, that's all that we're covering today. It's a really simple story, really practical story. I would guess most of you have heard this story. Maybe you've even heard some sermons on it. But I know for me, I have taken this massively out of context in my own life. In fact, I use this as a bit of a trump card when it comes to arguments. Um, I just want to give an example uh, before I get into what Jesus is actually accomplishing, what he's, what he's breaking down in this passage. Uh, but my wife and I, uh, we've now been married five years. We have two kids. 
Um, we struggled a lot with fighting in our first three years, and I'm, I'm happy to say that the two kids that we've had have completely fixed our marriage. Um, we no longer fight anymore. Uh, everything is just perfect. That's obviously a lie. Um, Kendra and I are pretty, we're a pretty volatile couple in a good way and a bad way sometimes. We like to fight, um, and we've, got, we've had some knockdown, drag-out fights, both pretty strong-willed. My wife is what I would consider, I think what most people would consider, a type A personality. Any type A personalities in here? One, two, two people admitting that they're type A. Okay, I have a feeling we have more type A people in here. Um, but I, I personally, I think that type A people get a bad rep. I think that it's not really fair um, that they've got the, they, they literally get the, an A in their name. Um, they, that makes, that honestly causes a lot of stress in their life. They have a lot to live up to. And so I personally think that really most type A people should be relabeled. We just call them type B people. B for boring um, type A people have, uh, it's not, well, in my opinion, they're kind of boring. Uh, my wife can be uh, a bit of a schedule Nazi. Um, she has a list of maybe 10, 12 things that she's got to accomplish for that day. And, you know, six of those things require me um, on some level to do that. But she won't actually tell me that's the, you know, the list. She just expects me to, you know, be able to figure that out. Maybe some of you relate to that. I am more of what we would call a type B person, which I really think should be called type A which A being for awesome, people that like to have fun, people that like to enjoy themselves. Um, maybe maybe uh, some of you are like this. You're really just what you would consider a people person. You like spending time with people. And so one of the things, it seems like my wife, she'll have a plan uh, for herself and for me. And so then I'll get home and she'll tell me, Greg, I need you to do this, this, and this. And she always tells me, right when I'm about to act on my plans for the day, which usually is something along the lines of catch up on uh, my cue and Netflix, scroll through social media, watch YouTube, listen to a podcast, go hunting, something fun. And uh, I didn't tell her about my plans because I just came up with my plans five minutes ago, but still her plans are cutting into my plans. And so then we would fight about it. And I, I would use this passage. Uh, it's, it's really pitiful. It is a pitiful thing that I did. But I, I would use this passage quite a bit, and I would just tell my wife, you are such a Martha. Uh, you are such a Martha. And so one of the things that I, I want to kind of establish early as we're, as we're unpacking this is we are all Martha, okay? Uh, we, we do this thing as Christians, but I think really as human beings, is what we do is we will we'll kind of hold our personality, whatever our personality type is, whether we're type A or we're a people person, um, and I'm totally reducing people to two camps. I know there's personalities are way more complex than that. But I think that there's this thing. I know I do this, and I, I'm, I can say, I think my wife might do this as well, and I'm just guessing that you might as well. What we do is we spiritualize our personalities uh, the way that God made us, and then we'll demonize other personalities. We'll look at the way that Pastor Rodney's wired. So I, I'm not really, I wouldn't consider myself a type A person, but compared to Pastor Rodney, I look like the most type A person on the planet. Okay? And that's true. Anyone that really knows Rodney would, be, would say that's true. I think he would say that if he was up here with you right now. But what, that, what, what I can do in uh, you know, Rodney not giving me very much heads up time and not being able to use his material, having to come up with my own material, I could very easily on any given Sunday be like, man, I'm just the guy, I'm the lowest, I'm the, the, lowest, the last draft pick, Mr. Irrelevant. Everyone just throws all this different stuff on me um, and start to feel kind of, kind of like, you know, like I'm, I'm, the, I'm the punching bag or, you know, whatever that may be. And that's, I think, really what most type A people feel like. Uh, they feel dumped on maybe. Um, maybe you have felt that way 
But I just want to, I want to pause and help you to understand that whether you are a scheduler or you're flying by the seat of your pants, we are all Martha. We all struggle with this lack of good priorities in our life. So um, the, the thing that I wanted to, I want to cover, that Jesus does three things in this passage, and I want to break it down, and then I want to leave you hopefully just with some really practical, uh, practical steps that you can take to, to slow down a little bit in this Christmas season, but just try to practice more of Jesus' presence in your life. We're actually going to take communion together at the end of service, um, and that, that'll be kind of our first step, our first commitment to actually practicing Jesus' presence. But here's the three things that Jesus does in this passage. The first thing, he shatters a myth, okay? A myth that we tell ourselves that we, particularly Christians, people who you know, belong to church, a myth that we believe. Two, he confronts a fear. And the final thing is he points us to a better way forward, okay? So those are the three things he does. Uh, the first myth, the, the first thing that he does, and I kind of established this a little bit. Maybe, maybe you'll, you'll see this um, when I was talking about type A people and non-type A people. But there's this myth that all of us believe um, if we are more of a scheduled person or maybe someone who would struggle with workaholism on some level, uh, someone who really is obsessed with that identity of, uh, of being a mom or being a dad, and it's this, busyness equals faithfulness. We oftentimes do this in our lives where we will do a bunch of different things so that we then can, whether we're convincing ourselves or we're trying to convince other people, that we are being faithful. Um, that's, that's a little thing we like to call legalism, something that helps us so we can pat ourselves on the back, feel good about ourselves, and um, kind of perpetuate this view that I am holy so you don't have to call me out. I keep, can keep everyone at an arm's distance and, uh, and look really spiritual. Uh, the flip side, so I talked about people more like me, people who call, consider themselves people people. Uh, those people actually believe um, in a similar, uh, a similar myth, but what they're really telling themselves is that I'm a people person, I'm all about relationships, when in reality, people like me, what, really, what they really run the risk of doing is actually using people to just have fun. And that really, you're, you're operating under this guise that you care so much about people and that the way that you connect with people, you're super spiritual because you just care about people and you'll, you'll, you know, you'll go do whatever with people. When in reality, you're using um, going golfing as an excuse to, to fellowship with people. And I'm not saying that we can't do those things and that, that that's, that's not a good thing. But oftentimes, we will spiritualize our interactions with people that maybe aren't actually that spiritual, that are maybe just kind of fun. And we really, the, really the person that we're interested in serving the most is ourselves. I know I'm guilty of this. And this is why uh, this myth of busyness being faithfulness or spending time with people equals faithfulness is not true. And we can actually be deceiving ourselves into this busy lifestyle rather than actually sitting at Jesus' feet just as Mary did and learning from him and resting and, and obeying him the way, in the way that he has, the better way that he has for us. So, so Jesus confronts a myth. The second thing is he confronts a fear. And here is our second point uh, in the sermon. It's this. You can write it down for you avid note takers. Fear drives our busyness. You may not realize this, but one of the main reasons that you find yourself maybe overbooked or uh, are the, the person that everyone dumps on at work or you are overwhelmed with your involvement in raising your children is because you have been running, running, running uh, as a result of a fear, a lie ultimately that you believe about yourself. 
So I want to unpack kind of how this plays out in different, the different roles in our lives, such as jobs, kids, um, even church. But before we do that, I just want to, I want to take a quick look at the scripture again. So in verse 41, uh, well, actually, we'll go to verse 40. So it says, Martha was distracted from much serving. So she's busy, preoccupied in the kitchen. And she's frustrated with her sister Martha, or Mary. Martha's frustrated with her sister Mary, who's sitting at Jesus' feet. And I just want to point this out real quick. That would have been very countercultural at the time. That maybe isn't something, it's, it's not as countercultural today. I would, I'd make the argument that sitting at Jesus' feet and actually making time, prioritizing Jesus is definitely not uh, normal for the day and age that we live in, even in the Christian life. However, at the time, this would have been countercultural because women, women didn't sit and listen to rabbis. Women were preoccupied with things of the home, which is exactly what Martha was doing. So Martha was being a good girl. She was doing exactly what she was supposed to be doing based on the culture, based on the culture at the time. So she's busy in the kitchen, and she's upset because Martha, Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus, not doing what she's supposed to be doing, not doing what culture tells her that she should be doing, and she's upset about it. And she says, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? So she asks a passive-aggressive question, and then, and then she commands Jesus, says, tell her then to help me. So she's leveraging this relationship that she has with Jesus, and Jesus' response is this, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. And I think, I, I, I don't know if you, I learned this, so I don't know if you know this, but uh, in Scripture, you'll see uh, a few different times. One time that's, I think, the most memorable time uh, where names are repeated uh, Jesus does this on the, uh, the, the cross. As he's about to give his spirit up, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And I think that in, in our language, it's kind of more like the, that's what you would do. You would repeat someone's name like my little son. Uh, he's uh, Emmett. I've got two sons now. Emmett's two years old. He's, he's just a, a, a nightmare in a lot of ways. He's a really sweet kid, and we love him very much. But we just got back from Thanksgiving uh, with my, my side of the family, and he's kind of shy at first, but then he'll find himself, like we, there was one time he was downstairs playing, and his older cousin, Everett, because we, we wanted to confuse people, so we've got an Emmett and an Everett in our family. Um, he, uh, he, Emmett was downstairs playing with him, and Everett's kind of afraid of Emmett. He's overly aggressive, and I don't know if he gets that from my side of the family or his mom's side of the family. We have a little bit of a hunch that he might get it from both sides of the family, so, so we're probably in for... Uh, uh, an interesting life, but my mom went downstairs, so his grandma went downstairs, and uh, all, pretty soon we heard, uh, we heard Everett, his older cousin, going, mommy, 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 and, uh, and my mom said she, she walked into the room, and Emmett, my son, had his two-year older cousin pinned up against the wall, and was like sliding him, almost kind of smearing him along the wall. And uh, which would have, honestly, that would have freaked me out when I was four. Um, so we're going to need to get this kid involved in, I, I just found out after first service that I might actually be able to get him in, involved in wrestling as early as three years old. Um, I was not a wrestler, but I also know I was not as aggressive as my son is. So we'll hopefully have some positive outlets for that. But the point being is that, um, that, that, He's, he's chaotic, right? Like, my kids are chaotic. But um, looking at this, when, when I would yell at my son, I'm going to be like, Emmett Michael Fred, what are you doing? You know, and I'm going to try to get as big and boomy. I'm not going to do it because I don't want to blow this microphone out. But I, I, we usually will we'll repeat name or we'll say our kid's full name. That's when you whip out that middle name and you're just like, hey, what are you doing? 
Well, in this case, that's not what the way it works. What it, what it really is saying is it's actually a place of surrender or a place of honor, high honor actually. So what Jesus is doing when he says, Martha, Martha, is he's actually showing us that he's not scolding Martha as much as he is, he's asking her to pause. And he's saying, Martha, my sister, the one I love, the one I care about, you are anxious and troubled about many things. And so what Jesus first does is he steps into this moment and he's not ridiculing her, he's not making her feel ashamed, he's showing us that he loves her. And then he, he says, you are anxious, which really anxious is just a synonym, we know this, for fear. She's afraid. Fear and worry is a theme throughout all of the Gospels. All of the disciples are afraid and they make really stupid decisions based on their fears. So Jesus is continuing to establish, don't worry, don't be anxious, don't be afraid. So then the question becomes for us, well, what is, Mar- what is Martha afraid of? And really, what are we afraid of? So I'm just going to walk through a few things that I think we might be afraid of. Um, we're going to start with job, and we'll just kind of work our way through a lot of the things we talked about. So job, um, maybe it's a fear of insignificance. Maybe, maybe as a young kid, uh, you, you maybe struggled to fit in, and uh, one of the ways that you kind of found your niche is just through hard work, um, dedicated to it. And so there's this fear that you, you run in. Maybe, maybe it's a fear that you won't get that promotion if you don't put in those extra hours. Maybe it's that you won't achieve as much as you're capable of achieving. And so then others will look down on you because, well, you just wasted all of your gifting. Uh, maybe, maybe it's a fear of being left behind. Just you know, the keeping up with the Joneses. You see your neighbor just got a brand new vehicle. They just uh, expanded their garage from a single car garage to a quadruple car garage. You're like, man, I really, I don't even have a triple car garage. I really got to start, you know, I got to put in extra hours so we can, we can have 15 vehicles fit in our house rather than just, you know, my measly five, right? This is, this is something that we all do. Maybe even in your job, it's not as much, uh, it's not as much about the money or success but it's just about the relationships. Maybe there's a fear of rejection. Maybe you are known for being that person that's a getter dunner. You're known for being that person that everyone can dump on because you need the approval of your peers. You need that because you're afraid of rejection. Others will think less of me if I don't do this. And a harsh reality is that it may not just be your job, that may be your relationship with the church. This is a scary reality. Anyone ever heard of the 80-20 principle or the 20-80 principle? So it's this. 20% of the people do 80% of the work, okay? Um, there we might actually have a few of those people. I was kind of given first service a hard time. Uh, but these are the people that are serving in children's ministry right now. They served in both services. Um, they're, they're the ones that get three invites from three different ministry heads to serve in children's ministry, to serve in worship team, and to serve on cof- coffee team, and to be a greeter out front. These are your super servers. We call them super servers. But there's a, there's a, a, a dangerous truth and reality to people that spend their life dedicated in service to doing the work of ministry, doing these servant jobs. That's exactly what Martha's doing here. Martha is doing the the behind-the-scenes grunt work that no one wants to do. She's washing the dishes. She's making the food, right? And this is is what we do. We busy ourselves. And maybe it's a lot of this, I'm afraid, is driven by a fear. And it's a really dangerous fear. And so we need to call it out. It's a fear that you aren't doing enough uh, for God's approval. 
And this is something that I, it's, I'm sad to say that I believe not only New Life, but a lot of churches have done to other people is that they've, they've actually gotten a lot of work out of people who struggle with this need to prove to themselves and to God that they are worthy of his affection. And the bottom line is that is, that is not the gospel. In fact, that is a false gospel. That is a works-based, legalistic gospel that says if you work hard enough, if you do enough right things, you will earn your way to heaven. And I'm telling you today, that is not the gospel. The gospel is that when Jesus breathed his last breath, he said, it is finished. He said, you were bought with a price. He gave his life so that he could purchase your life, save you from your sin, and send you on your way to do kingdom work. And so I just, I want to say, if that's your story, one, I want to say, I'm sorry. If your story is that you are wrestling and struggling and you're serving and you're giving and you're doing all these things because you're trying to earn an affection from God, I'm sorry because we have done a bad job. We failed you in that regard because that is not at all what serving is meant to do in the church. Now, I want to also say this. This is not an excuse <laughs> to not belong to the church. This is, this is not, I don't want you to leave. And then Pastor Rodney's like, man, I haven't seen so-and-so in a long time. And they're like, well, Greg preached this sermon and he told me that um, I, I'm not supposed to serve because that could be unhealthy for my relationship with the Lord. And so instead of next summer, instead of only coming back once a month, I'm not going to come back at all. I'm just going to stay at the lake all summer. And I don't want to, you know, I don't want to get caught in sin or anything like that. So I just want you to know that's not what I'm saying at all. But what I am saying is that the church has played a role likely in training you to be a server for those of you, those 20 percenters that do 80% of the work. We've trained you to be a server and it might actually be feeding a dysfunction, a dysfunctional false gospel. So I want to get that out of the way. It's not an excuse to not get involved, but it is an excuse to take a step back and say, you can only add so many things to your life. And if, and if all of these things that you're doing or serving is really just to perpetuate this idea that you're super spiritual, but in reality, you're just going home and you're living just as sinful a life as anyone else, we've got a problem. Houston, we have a problem. So we often try to add to our lives in order to grow, when in reality, what we need is a less distracting, uh, we need less distracting us from what's really important, and that's time with Jesus. And the final thing that I want to hit on that's uh, fear, I think a lot of us, um, for a lot of us, is the fear that's driven by our families, specifically raising children. Now, I don't know about you, but I know a lot of people um, uh, within the last you know, year or two that have moved from all over creation to Aberdeen, South Dakota. I don't know if they just like took a dart at the South Dakota map and just threw it, and they're like, that's where we're moving. But I have, there's a lot of people that have moved to South Dakota. In fact, I've seen, I think Florida and South Dakota per capita are like the top two states that people moved to through COVID and everything, okay? Um, and what, what, does anyone want to know why? Does it, do, do you know why? What I hear pretty consistently is it's not necessarily job opportunity. In fact, some people take massive pay cuts in order to move here. What it is, is it's safe. They see South Dakota as the last place on earth that anyone would want to start a war at because they, in their, they don't even know it exists. They, they think it's still the Dakota Territories. They don't even know. South Dakota is not North Dakota, right? No, it's not. Um, they, they don't realize that. So like virtually nobody lives here. But it's not just that there's no, that not very many people that live here. It's because we're, we're perceived as kind of this last beacon of hope for good old-fashioned family 
values. Family values. Family first. Family first. Which is a good thing. Families are a gift from God. And they're to be cherished and, they, and, and, and stewarded well. But the reality is, they are a massive, massive false idol for us in our lives. We will do a ton in the name of providing a better way for kids. And it's, and it's really, really problematic. In fact, there's a study just to prove uh, the point. That I don't, like the type A people that I've talked about, my, my wife um, uh, and myself, I, I would be lying to say I'm not very type A, but I definitely want my kids to have good opportunities. This is, a, this is kind of a new phenomenon. I grew up um, in Mobridge, and I did. Got, I feel like I was kind of on the very beginning stages of this these Y teams, these these travel basketball teams, and I got invited a lot to go on them uh, by a few different teams in the Mobridge area. And my dad had a very very strict, which I guess on some level you could consider it. Some maybe would consider it a legalism, but there was a specific uh, reason he drew this line in the sand. And and he actually said, Greg, you can go to trips, but if the if the tournament branches over into onto a Sunday then I'm sorry you're not going to be able to go to it. And my dad, what he did in doing that was he, he, he made a commitment that as long as you're in our house, you don't have to love going to church. You don't even have to necessarily have a relationship with Jesus. But as long as you're in my house, I'm going to raise you with the priorities that I believe God has called us to have, and you're not going to be able to go on that. Now, realistically, what my dad actually did was he saw my, my skills, and he's like, Greg, no Y team's going to make you an NBA player. Um, and I don't know if you know this, it, it, despite popular opinion, um, not, it's actually less than 90% of South Dakotans end up in the NBA. Um, so uh, that, was, that was a massive joke. Like virtually nobody, right? We've got, what, Mike Miller, and there's maybe a couple other people that have made the cut. It's the exception, not the rule. So I, harsh to break it. Maybe it hurts, and maybe I'm wrong. Maybe your kid will be the outlier. They will make it to the NBA or the WNBA. But odds are, our kids aren't making it to the NFL. Our kids aren't making it to the NBA. They might make it to the South Dakota Hall of Fame, which is nothing. It's, it's not nothing, right? It's not nothing. But it's definitely, um, it's, it, it's just reality, right? My dad probably understood that. But the, the bottom line is this. He, he took what the world was telling him was an opportunity, and an opportunity that you have to give your kid. And he said, he made a decision that the relationship was more important than the opportunity. And so there's a study that was done by a, a guy named Brian Kaplan, um, and it was a study done on biological twins that were adopted into different families. So they take two twins at birth, and then they would separate them um, into two different families. And they finally got enough uh, test subjects or case studies to where they could actually formulate um, some, I, I don't remember exactly how many thousand uh, were in the case study. But what they found was that they, they would try to, they'd try to gauge. So whether the kid, one kid would end up with a family that was less type A, you know, a little bit less concerned with opportunities, and the other one that was way more concerned about opportunities, you're going to be involved in uh, all three sports, you're going to be involved in National Honor Society, you will have above a 4.0 GPA, uh, which I didn't even know was possible when I was in high school, it shows you how well I did in school, um, but, but uh, these, these people that had all of these boxes checked for their kids, and then the kids who basically didn't have no standards, but were just their parents were less concerned. They found that there was no correlation and virtually no difference between how those students ended up doing in terms of success later in life. There was no correlation with opportunity actually creating more opportunity. So this lie that we like to believe 
whether we're on the side of victimizing ourselves because we feel like we didn't have the opportunities that other people had, or on the flip side, we had all these opportunities and we didn't live up to it. The truth is, opportunity doesn't create more opportunity by default. It does not. And so what that, what that actually, what they actually found is when they interviewed these kids, rarely did the kids ask for even more time with their parents. What they did say, however, was they, they said that they wished that their parents were less stressed and, and less prone to anger. So what was happening is, just like what D.A. Carson talked about, when you burn the candle at both ends, you don't actually have that much to give relationally. So you try to, you try to make up for it with opportunities, and what ends up happening is your kids actually suffer from what, what this Kaplan calls secondhand stress. So you've heard of secondhand smoke. That's why nobody is allowed to smoke in, in buildings anymore. Uh, it's, we consider it a pretty grave danger, not good for our health. Well, Kaplan says that there's something just as dangerous to the family and specifically to our kids, and it's this idea of secondhand stress, that the stress that you put on yourself to earn more so that you can provide for your kids, to create opportunities that you maybe didn't have for your kids, doesn't actually pay off, and in fact, it might actually do harm to them. The bottom line from this is what we can understand is that kids crave relationship. They crave relationship. They want that relationship with you. And we see this, it's part of the reason why, believe it or not, a lot of the kids that are really consistent at youth group aren't kids that come from families that are like what I, we would consider really strong families. In a lot of cases, they're kids that actually come from maybe what, would, what we would call a broken family, or maybe they don't have any family. Maybe they're being raised by their biological grandparent or, or they're in the foster care system. We've actually had a lot of kids that have been really consistent that don't have a very intact family. Why is that? Well, it's not because they view youth group as a, uh, as a checked box. They have relationships that they see as important at youth group. So that's just a little shameless plug for why youth group's important, which, you know, maybe I'm justifying uh, my, so I guess you can rest easy knowing that my job, um, I guess, is, is, is important. Maybe I'm wrestling with the fear of insignificance, trying to convince you that youth ministry is important. I don't know. But, uh, but the point is we should strive for our children to be this relationally rich and experience poor. It doesn't mean, I'm not saying that we can't have our kids have experiences. I'm not even saying that a kid, that you have to have some rigid legalism, that your kid can never go on a traveling basketball trip or a, or, or a wrestling tournament or a swim meet or whatever. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is that we should be striving first and foremost, putting the priority at building relationships so that our, our kids grow up relationally rich and experience poor and not the other way around. Not experience rich and relationally poor. Most of our baggage from even our parents isn't baggage from, man, I just wish they would have had more opportunity. Um, I wish that really if we are saying that we're actually in denial and really what it is, you wish your parent maybe would have been around a little bit more. You wish that your parent would have been maybe in a better mood. You wish that your parent would have encouraged you a little bit more. And so what you'd find is that if you were to go back and have more opportunity, you probably would still be left wanting. And the reason is because we were not made as achieving beings. We were made as relational beings. We are relational first before we are rational. We are relational before we ever start to begin to understand what it even means to achieve. 
My little, my little kids, well, one of them can't even, like, doesn't even know, you know. He thinks that we're supposed to be awake at night and sleep during the day. Um, so he's like, you know, he's on a totally another playing field. But my two-year-old, do you think my two-year-old is very concerned with achieving, you know, what perception, you know, like how good of a two-year-old? Is he the best two-year-old of all the two-year-olds? Do you really think he's spending his time thinking about that? No. What he's thinking about is, man, I can't wait till dad gets home so that I can play monster trucks with dad. Or um, he's trying to manipulate his mom into letting him watch yet another episode of Spider-Man or, uh, or uh, Paw Patrol or something like that. Kids crave relationships. And as we, as we start to close, um, I, I want to I spend some time looking at the life of Mary, something that Mary understood that all of us need to understand if we're going to move forward and we're actually going to grow in this area in our lives. You see, Mary was relationally rich. She understood that you get quality from quantity. This is something that, uh, Pastor, it's actually, I think, focused on the family, and I know Chip Ingram has said it before. Pastor Rodney said it. Um, I doubt either one of those people actually came up with it. But, the, but the, the reality is this. We don't get quality without quantity. You don't get a quality relationship without a quantity amount of time. It's just a fact. You can't make up for lost time. We are limited beings. So she understood that. And that's why she spent time rather than worrying about all the things. She understood Martha, as she's fixing the meal, she understood that this is the master. This is the one who literally took five loaves um, and and two fish and and he fed thousands of people. So when it comes to preparing a meal for Jesus, it's kind of irrelevant, right? Jesus could snap his finger and turn water into wine. And so all of these things, these preparations that Martha is doing, it's not that it's not a good thing and it's not that we shouldn't worry about certain things and not that we shouldn't have good work ethic. It's that Mary had her priorities in line. She understood this is the creator of the universe. This man can do anything and he's already proven it. So I'm going to sit at his feet and I'm going to become relationally rich as I learn from my master rather than spend all my time trying to prove to myself that I'm deserving of a relationship with him. You see, that brings us to our, our, our last point, and it's this. It's presence is the better portion. Being present with the Lord, spending time at his feet is the better portion. It's not we sit at his feet, and as a result of our relationship, we become more blessed. It's not this idea that if I check these boxes in this relationship, then I will earn more and I'll become more profitable than ever before. Could those be byproducts of your relationship with Jesus? Absolutely. I'm not saying that they're not. But the truth is, is that's not, that's not actual true uh, worship of Christ. That's, that's worshiping the blessing rather than the blesser. And Mary understood this as she sat at the feet of Jesus. She understood that presence with Jesus was the better portion. And the bottom line is this. This is a John Ortenberg quote. He said this, love and hurry are fundamentally incompatible. It's not going to pop up on your screen. I'm going to read that one more time. But if, if you want to write this down, I would, I would challenge you to write this down and put it to memory and, just, and, and try to remember this. Love and hurry are fundamentally incompatible. In other words, you don't get quality without quantity. In other words, um, love and hurry, when it comes to love and hurry, that really God actually has a speed. You've heard the term Godspeed, you know, God be with you, Godspeed. 
this idea that God actually moves at a specific speed. And when you look at discipleship, the, the model that Jesus put in place, it's actually pretty inefficient. You'll find that discipleship is really frustrating in terms of time commitment, you know, your time commitment, what you put in versus what you get out of it. And the reason is because it's not about that. That God actually has a speed and his speed is love. And love takes time. Anyone, you know the psalm, uh, um, oh, you don't have, uh, you just have to wait. Uh, love don't come easy. It's a game of give and take. You know that the psalmist, uh, Phil Collins, wrote that song. You know what I'm talking about? That song's true, right? Love takes time. Love is a commitment. Love is not an emotional feeling. It is an action. It is small obedience over the grand scheme of your life and ultimately eternity. The greatest danger that we run uh, into with our busyness is that it keeps us from the one necessary thing, the better portion, and that is Jesus. Our busyness keeps us from the reason for the season. I know it's a cliche, and it's been written too many times in cursive on, uh, or, or that font, whatever that is right there, on a travel mug that has a venti Starbucks drink in it, but it's true. This busy time, this busy season of our life is really just, it's our life, right? It's not just the season, it's all of our lives. We're busy. And when we pause, we take time to sit at Jesus' feet. What we see is, that's the better portion. That is what Jesus came for. He came to give us his presence where we were cut off from his presence. It's not the blessing that you get. It, he is the blessing. Jesus is the blessing. And so the worship team is going to come back up. We're going to actually take communion together. So I would just invite you. We've got communion elements. They should be on your right-hand side. Uh, just before we get into this, I've got a little, a little intro that I want to do. I just challenge you this morning, this idea of communion. But uh, just before we, before we take communion, I just want you to know we practice a believer's communion here at New Life. What that means is you don't have to be a member of the church in order to take communion. But what we do ask is that you have a relationship with Jesus, that you don't have unconfessed sin in your life. Um, and this ultimately, just like uh, baptism here at New Life, is an outward expression of an inward faith. And so this does not save you in and of itself. It is an expression. It is something that Jesus commanded us to remember and to do and take in his remembrance. And so I just want to challenge you real quick. Actually, I want to fast forward a little bit from this story of, of Mary and Martha uh, to another spot where we see them. Again, some, these were actually some of Jesus' closest friends. Um, and their brother, you'll see Lazarus is in here, their brother Lazarus who died and Jesus actually rose from the dead. Um, Jesus, that's where we see Jesus actually wept. He wept for his, his brother, his friend, Lazarus. And so this family meant a lot to him, spent a lot of time with them. So in John chapter 12, verses 1 through 8, it says this. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, the one Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha was serving them. Martha, back at her old antics. See, she, you, it wasn't that, you know, she wasn't sinning here. It's just part of who she was. Martha was serving them, and Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took a pound of perfume. Imagine that setting. Just real quick, i got to pause on this. Imagine you're sitting at a table with a guy that was dead until your friend Jesus, who's your guest of honor, raised him from the dead. It's just insane. I can't believe that. He's just sitting there reclined, you know, 
sip, munching on dessert, I don't know, a cup of coffee, probably not. But then verse 3, Then Mary took a pound of perfume, pure and expensive nard, anointed Jesus' feet, and wiped his feet with her hair. So the house was filled with fragrance of the perfume. Then one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was about to betray him, said, Why wasn't this perfume sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He didn't say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. He was in charge of the money bag and would steal part of what was put in. Jesus answered him, said, leave her alone. She, was, she has kept it for the day of my burial. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always, or you will not always have me with you. And I want to pause on two simple things. First thing is this. Jesus knew that Judas was going to betray him. And this is, as I said, six days before the Passover, which was right before uh, when Jesus would have actually been arrested. The plot to, to, to kill Jesus would have been, been, been put forward, would have been advanced. And so Jesus had every reason to be upset with Judas. And yet when Judas, he, he saw right through Judas's motives, he wasn't concerned with the poor. He was concerned with filling his own pocket. And yet, he didn't even bother to mess with that. What he did was he actually looked at the good thing that Judas was you know, justifying his argument with. He said, why don't we give this to the poor? And Jesus says to Judas, the poor will always be with you, but I won't always be with you. And we back up right before that, and he says something really important. You could miss this really easy. She has kept it for the day of my burial. You see, Mary sat at Jesus' feet and listened from him in a time when it would have been countercultural and she wouldn't have been allowed to or, or it would have been looked down on for her doing. In fact, rabbis would have typically rebuked them for doing that. Jesus didn't. And what you see is Jesus had hundreds of people that actually followed him. He had 12 closest disciples. That, they were his confidants. They were the people that sat around the table when they had their Passover supper. But what none of them understood was the message that Jesus time and time and time again, that I have come to die. And yet, not one of the 12, but a woman that should not have basically been allowed to be at his feet, to be listening and being taught from him. A woman understood what Jesus was saying. She understood the real reason that Jesus came. And he did not come to overthrow kings and kingdoms. He came to die for the kingdom of your heart. He came to die to make a way so that you can have relationship with him, that I can have relationship with him. And the only person that seemed to get this spent a massive amount of money at the time to dump it at the feet that she sat by, wiped his feet with her hair in doing basically what would have been preparing his body for sacrifice. And so what we see is Mary understood the gospel because she sat at his feet. And those closest to him, even though they heard all the information, they sat under his teaching for three years while they followed him. They left all their jobs to follow him. They knew who he was, and yet they missed this key point. And it is the reason that Jesus came into this world. And as we enter into this Advent season where we look at the baby infant Jesus, we look at this life, uh, this, this innocent life that was born in a stable so that you and I can have hope for eternity in, pre in the presence of Jesus, in the presence of our Creator. 
The only person that understood that was the person who shouldn't have even been sitting at his feet in the first place and understood it to the point where she knew, she knew that Jesus was going to die. And so my challenge to, to you would be this. Is there a chance that we, you and I, have missed this? That we have been spending all of our, all of our time living this Christian life, but in reality we've missed the whole point. We've missed the entire reason for this Christmas season. And in our busyness, we've made a mockery of what Jesus has actually called us to, and that is just being in his presence. And so I'd invite you, I'm going to ask you to stand. We're going to take communion together before we sing one last song, but don't, let, don't waste this Christmas season on just being busy, on just buying gifts, on just doing all of these things, not saying that they're bad, those are bad things, but take a moment and use this season as an opportunity to pause and remember what Jesus has done for you and for me. And so six days later, after he saw, uh, we, the disciples watched Mary dump all of this expensive perfume and, and nard on, on Jesus' feet and, and humbled herself to the point of wiping his feet with his hair. He sat around his table, this table with 12, other, 12 of his closest disciples, one that was even actively plotting to arrest him, have him arrested. And he said, he took the bread and he said, take this bread and eat. This is my body broken for you. Take and eat. So we take the bread. And in pouring the wine, he said, this isn't just mere wine. This is my blood shed for the sins of the world. Take and drink. So we take the juice. Would you bow with me? Father, we thank you. We thank you for making a way where there was no way. We thank you for loving us. And God, I, I confess this morning to the idolatry of, of work, to the idolatry of family, to the, the, the idol worship of, of living a safe and secure life, uh, busy doing all of these things, which in reality, God, are hurting my relationship with you. And so God, I just I lay my life at your feet this morning. I throw myself at your teaching, the authority of your word. And God, I just ask that you would help us to pause in this season of hustle and bustle and that we would remember that your, your, uh, you have a speed and your speed is not always as fast as we'd like it to be. God, for our distractions, all the things that are vying for our attention, social media, um, all of our technology, our entertainment, even our families, and other things that, God, are supposed to fall underneath of your headship. I just ask that this morning that you would tear, uh, tear that apart, and that would you, would you just uh, cause this season for the first time maybe in our lives to be a time of rest, not because uh, things are going perfectly and we've got this picturesque moment that we're going to capture on social media and post it for everyone to be jealous of, but, God, because we are so in tune with what you are calling us to do that we lose ourselves in the life that you have made for us rather than trying to earn and earn and earn your affection. Jesus, we thank you for the cross. We thank you for loving us. Jesus, I thank you for, it, for thinking of me while you were on that cross. God, I'm so undeserving of your love and I fail over and over and over again. And yet your love catches my attention. And so God, we ask, would you catch our attention this season? We pray all of this in your name and everybody said, Amen. 
Thanks so much for joining us today. We pray this message connected with you, and we hope it gave you another way to connect with Jesus and your New Life family. For more ways to get plugged in here at New Life, you can visit our website at www.newlifeaberdeen.org. Thanks again for listening and have a great week.